0: I know the look in some of your eyes um, because uh, this is the last week of freedom for many of you. Um, My kids count down to the last day of school. I count down to the first day. (laughs) So five more days, you know, um, until school starts. But there is something, I don't know, maybe it's just, maybe it was just me. But how many of you, there was something about the first day of school that while, you know, you didn't look forward to necessarily going back to school. There was something always exciting about that first day, the first week. Like how many of you, you can confess this, how many of you loved like new notebooks and new paper and new backpacks? Yeah, I know who you are. Yeah, yeah. So, so there was just something about that first day. Where all the notebooks are fresh and new and, you know, the backpack is clean and everything's just kind of, you know, everything's just kind of the way. It doesn't last long, but, it, but at least it starts out that way. And there's this always this thought or this desire that you have inside that, like, it's, this, this year's going to be different. Like, I'm going to be organized. <laughs> like, like, I'm not going to wait till the night before to start the project. I'm not going to do that this year. And usually that's all out the window by about the third week of school. But at least we start out with the effort and the attempt— You know, that's that's true. Many times in life, we sort of get these automatic sort of do-over moments. Like if you've ever relocated to a new city and you've got that sense like, you know what? I'm going to this new place, and maybe it was a place you didn't know very many people. And you think I, I, this is a fresh start for me. I mean, I get to I get to start over. I uh, make some new friends. Uh, you know, maybe maybe even finding a new church. Maybe that's part of why you're here today. Uh, there's just all kinds of things. A new job, and you go to begin the first day of work, and and you think, well, there were there were things about my old job I didn't like, and I'm excited about this new opportunity, but new school year, new city, new job, all of them somewhere inside, there's also this thought about maybe I'll be different. I mean, maybe, maybe this is the change I need uh, in my environment to make a change internally inside of me. Maybe if, maybe there's a habit, there's sort of this, the way I talk to people and I, I, know, I, I know I need to change the way I speak to people. I know the way, the way I interact, I need to change that. And so this will give me the fresh start that I desire. This will give me the opportunity to begin again. But the problem the problem with the fresh start, the problem with do-overs is that we're always the same wherever we go. So everywhere you go, there you are. So whatever, you know, whatever those issues are that you had in your last school year, I mean, that's why, as much as you think, okay, this year's gonna be different and I'm not gonna wait till the night before to do the project. You're probably still going to wait till the night before to do the project because the school year may be new, but it's the same old you. And you may move to a new city or start a new job and think, "Well, I'm going to change this habit. I'm not going to. I'm not going to talk that way anymore. I'm not going to treat people that way anymore. I, you know, I'm going to drink less. I'm going to do whatever it is. You may think I'm going to be different, and the city's new and the job's new, but you're not you 're the same same old person now that 's not to say that that there aren 't times where those kinds of changes really do empower us to make significant changes but it 's not it 's not usually enough by itself. I would say actually it 's it's, it's never enough by itself. We started a new series last week that we 're calling watermark and, and we 're calling it this because we we, we looked at at a watermark and what is exactly a watermark on our currency in stationery and paper and and basically a watermark is is a sign of of quality it's a sign that shows okay this what i've got is is quality it's also a sign of authenticity this is real and it's also a sign of branding it like it brands and marks it marks the, the what company produced that paper or what what company is represented by that stationery and what we said is that that really baptism is is that way as well That baptism is a sign of of who we are. Uh, It's an outward symbol. We said last week that it's a public act of obedience proclaiming an inward commitment of faith. That it's a mark of believing. That you can't really, in some ways, distinguish between what we believe and how we behave. That, that some people want to pit those two against each other. That, oh, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you behave the right way. And other people would say, well, all, you, all the behavior in the world doesn't matter. All that matters is really what you think and how you believe. And we said last week, that's, that's false. That really the two are one. That the way we behave is a mark of what we believe. You can't, you can't take those two things apart. But baptism symbolizes more than what we believe. It's something something much, much more significant than that. It's a symbol of a new beginning. It's not just a new school year or a new job or a new beginning. It's actually a new you. See, this series is really about marks of true discipleship. And, and it's not just the symbol the symbol the symbology of baptism or the symbolism of that practice, that religious ritual. It, it says that the mark of the mark of belief is. Is what you believe, what you believe, what you truly believe at your core, also results in who you are becoming. Baptism is a mark of personal transformation. See, if my belief never changes me, if my beliefs are not transforming me, then I haven't been changed. If how many of you have ever, uh, some of you may have never ever witnessed. Um, uh, a baptism by immersion, believers baptism. But if you've been at Southside and you've maybe been to one of our beach baptisms or you've been with us in the sanctuary when we, when we do baptism, um, there is something that I say every time that I do a baptism. I have, usually have the person standing there. And and as they're getting ready to go under the water, I say buried with Christ in death and I lower them under the water and I say raised to walk in a new life and I lift them out of the water. And, and it, depending on how much the family pays me, I may hold them under just a little longer. Just... <laughs> Just kidding. Buried with Christ in death and raised to walk in a new life. That phrase isn't just some cliche or standard that, that I came up with. It's actually from, this, it's from the Bible. And it, 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 it's symbolic of something so much bigger than just a religious ritual or routine. So I want to talk about that this morning. If you have a Bible, we're going to look at Romans chapter 6 together. Romans 6. <clears throat> we're going to begin in verse 1. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. This is Paul writing to the Christians that live in Rome. Now, if you could imagine, those of you who are maybe new to the faith, or maybe you're coming back to the faith, and you, you think a lot of times, boy, it's just confusing. I, I don't really understand a lot. I mean, I I feel like I'm always behind the curve. Could you imagine coming to faith in Christ and there being no such thing as the Bible? I mean, there were no, no printed materials at all. I mean, so... The, the, the early church depended on people like Paul to come in and teach them uh, the truth. And, and fortunately for us, we're blessed to live in an age where, where we have had that. That was, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, written down, and it's been passed down to us. So we have what the Apostle Paul was teaching those Christians in Rome. But you've got to remember, they didn't know any of this. I mean, this was all new. They didn't have the Bible. They were new Christians. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was within their lifetimes. So there had not been time for those stories to be to be written down and shared all over. So here's what Paul was writing to the Romans. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, there was this idea, well, if my sin is covered by God's grace, then maybe I should just keep sinning so God can keep gracing. You know, I mean, that... You know, so so Paul is addressing a real question. This is a theological question they have. And here it says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you have come to faith in Christ, what you are proclaiming is that you have died. The old you is dead. How can you continue to live under the power of That used to animate you. Sin is what animated you before. How can you say that you've died to that. If you're continuing to live under its power. And he goes on in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us. Who have been baptized into Christ Jesus. Were baptized into his death. This is big. This is really big. And I want you to think about this. Whether you. Whether baptism is something you're looking at in the rearview mirror or whether baptism is something you're anticipating and praying about and thinking about in the future, here's something you really need to understand about your baptism. Paul says, you were not just dunked under some water. You were not just baptized into the name of Christ Jesus. You died with him. Like your baptism is symbolic of the fact that you died with Christ on the cross. That he came and died a death, a death that he did not deserve to die. So that you could live a life you don't deserve to live. That his, his death on the cross, your baptism is saying, I am identifying with him. I am buried with him, not just in the name, not just in religious ritual, not just because it's some water. But I am ba- I'm buried with him in his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. And here comes the reason. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might, be, might walk in newness of life. See, he says, without death, there can be no resurrection. Without the cross, there can be no empty tomb. Without Good Friday, there is no Easter. And this is true of your life as well. See, if you want to be new, if, if you think, I need a new start, I need a fresh start, You have to first die to the old way of living. The the old you must die in order for the new to come to life. It just makes sense. This is what Paul's saying. You are buried with Christ in his death so that, not just so that you can die and get rid of all the old bad habits, not just so that you can get rid of the old things you don't like. That's not the reason. The reason is so that something new can come, so that you can be raised with him to walk in a new life. Verse 5. We believe that we will also live with him. This is a powerful, powerful passage of scripture. And I know maybe this is a new text for you. Maybe it's something you haven't read in a long time or something you've never read. Let me just, can I encourage you, put something in your Bible. Put a, put a mark in your you know, you version page somewhere. Come back this week and just read this. Maybe read it every day this week. And just ask yourself... Where am I? Where am I in this process of of changing, of being transformed? how can I identify with Christ in his death so that, in order that I might be identified with him in his new life? And here's, here's where it comes back to baptism. Paul uses baptism as a symbol, it, and it's a beautiful, beautiful symbol. And this is why we teach about it. This is why Jesus commanded it. This is why we, pr- we practice it as a church. This is why we celebrate what's coming up on the 24th at Beach. Baptism is because of this. Baptism is a tombstone and a birth certificate. Baptism is a tombstone and a birth certificate. It's a tombstone that says, here lies the old me. And it's a birth certificate that says, here lies the resurrected me with Jesus Christ. I'm identified with Christ. It is a death, burial, and resurrection, proclaiming the gospel of Christ, but also proclaiming the testimony of someone who's been changed. That's that's what this is all about. So what I want to do this morning from this passage is just give two illustrations. I believe when you study the Bible, uh, the best way to interpret the Bible is by the Bible. So when we look at Romans 6, 1 through 8, I think we can find some examples of this exact thing in the Bible. So I'm going to look at two of them. And the first of the two examples is found in a story in 2 Kings uh, chapter 5. We're not going to read the whole thing today, but let me just kind of tell you uh, what, what this is about. This, this is about a guy. He's not he's not Jewish. He's a pagan. He's actually the head of an army of, of a group that has persecuted the Jews and persecuted God's people. Uh, his name is Naaman, all right? And you can find his story in 2 Kings chapter 5, but listen to what it says. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. They were Israel's enemy. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Notice that. That's, that's like the only reason that God's that the that the enemy of God's people were given victory is because God gave it to them. That God let them lead that. So that's, that's important. That's a different sermon another day. All right, so gave them victory. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Okay? So here's here's Naaman's story. Naaman's got everything going right. He is in a position of honor. He's had victory. His boss likes him. He's probably rolling. He probably doesn't have money problems. He he he's he's got it all together. But he had leprosy. Now, leprosy isn't a disease that that we wrestle with in in America. There are still parts of our world, third world, that, that battle leprosy. It's not something that we're familiar with. But let me just ask you: what's your leprosy? Because, because my guess is everything may look good, and everything may be going well, but there may be something inside of you that's eaten away your flesh, eating away the flesh of your heart. Uh, the Bible calls it sin, that, that, that everything may be going right, but he had leprosy. You know, I mean, you, you can look in our culture and our society today and find people, and from your vantage point, you think, man, they got it. They got everything going good for them. But you don't know what's going on in their heart what may be eating away at them. You don't know what may be eating away at the person next to you. See, it's not just about the appearance. It's about what's actually happening. It's about what's reality. So Naaman had a a big problem. So the king of Aram Aram, had this Jewish slave girl in his house, and this Jewish slave girl told the king, hey, king, back in my country, you know, people get healed from stuff. We, We worship a God who can heal that. Like, he can fix that. Your your Naaman that you like so much, he can fix it. So so the king sent Naaman with a letter to go to Israel and say, Hey, take this letter with you and go to Israel and, and, and get healed. So he goes to Israel. The king of Israel's like, I don't know what I don't know what you're talking about. I can't heal you of leprosy. Uh, and then somebody says, Hey, but there's this prophet. You should go see this prophet, Elisha. He can do great miracles. So Naaman and his whole entourage Make their way to Elisha's house. And, and we, we pick up, and uh, here's what it says. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Now, Naaman didn't even, or Elisha didn't even go himself. He just sent a messenger. Now, And I'm sure Naaman's saying, doesn't he know who I am? I mean, he could come talk to me himself. And here's what he did. But Naaman... Went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his arms over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any waters in Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. He's like, I'm not, going, I'm not doing that. Stu- that's stupid. I mean, that, have you seen the Jordan River? It is filthy. We got cleaner rivers back at home. This guy didn't even have enough courtesy to come out and talk to me himself. I am not doing this. I am not doing this. Where's that coming from? That's pride. That's pride. See, it wasn't the, 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 leprosy wasn't the only thing eating this man away. Pride was eating this guy up. And so he said, I am not doing that. I, who, he needs to come out. He needs to put on a show. He needs to wave his arms and call down fire from God. And we need something spectacular. So... I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people who are waiting on God to perform some spectacular act in order for them to change and be obedient to what God's calling them to do. Like, if God will only perform some massive miracle, well, then I'll believe and I'll obey and I'll do anything he tells me to do. But God, you got to do something first. God's not in the entertainment business. God's desire is not to prove himself to you. That's not what God is about. God wants to change you, but he doesn't owe you any demonstration of his power. And if you're waiting for God to do some spectacular act before you decide, okay, now I'm going to believe you and I'm going to do what you want, you may be waiting a long time because your step of obedience is always first. Throughout the entire Bible, every character, Old and New Testament. It is a step of obedience on the part of a faithful person that initiates God's miracle in their life every time. And so we have to step out. And this is what Naaman's facing. Am I going to be obedient? Am I going to do... Elijah was not asking him to do anything difficult. Just go dip in the water seven times. Elisha didn't say you had to believe a certain thing. He didn't say you had to change anything about the way you're living. He didn't say you had to give up working for the bad guys and being the leader of the army. He just said, just go down, dip in the water seven times. Because, see, this was a real test of obedience on the part of Naaman. What happened? Naaman's servant, fortunately, Naaman had a really smart servant. Naaman's servant went to him and said, now listen to this, because this, Naaman's servant may be speaking down from 4,000 years ago right to you right now. Okay, I mean, serious. Naaman, when God inspired, the Holy Spirit inspired Naaman's servant to say these words, he may have had you in in his mind just as well as he had Naaman. Listen to what he said. My father, if the prophet had told you to do some some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. And as the man of God had told him, And as the man of God told him, and his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. Now, the waters didn't cure Naaman's disease. God did it. But it required faith on Naaman's part as demonstrated through this act of obedience. Naaman had to respond to God's invitation of faith. He had to take a step. He had to do something that was, was, I'm sure he thought, was beneath him. It wasn't a gradual healing. That's what, I, I don't know what this was like, but here's my sense of things. Naaman didn't get in the water the first time and was a little bit better. The second time, a little bit better. Third time, a little bit better. I think Naaman got in the water the first time and got out and said, see, it didn't work. And the second time, see, it didn't work. The servant's saying, look, he told you seven times, Naaman. You've only done it four. Yeah, but, but I, don't see any, I don't see any change yet. I don't see any progress. Well, Naaman, you haven't dipped seven times. Come on, go again. Fifth time, comes out. Maybe an ear fell off. I mean, the situation may have been getting worse, you know? I mean, it it really, it could have been getting worse even while he was being obedient. Here's why I say that. Because some of you are in this journey with Jesus right now, and he's called you, and you you say, this is hard. It's hard for me to be obedient. It's hard for me to give up that old habit. It's hard for me to do. I know what God's calling me to do. I know he's calling me to be a better husband. I know he's calling me to be a better wife. I know he's calling me to be a better parent. I know he's calling me to be truthful at school, and it's hard, it's hard, it's hard. And sometimes my obedience actually makes my situation worse. It could get worse before it gets better. But don't give up. Continue to be faithful. So Naaman goes in the sixth time. And then the servant's like, come on, one more time, just one more time. And I'm sure the servant's thinking to himself, please let this work. Please let this work. And Naaman goes in the seventh time. And I don't know if he was grumbling and griping, but I'm grumbling, griping, but he's doing it. He's gutting it out. It's sheer obedience. And when he does it, when he's finally completely obedient, not, not, I was going to say a percentage. I don't know what six parts of seven, what percentage that is. Not six out of seven per, uh, uh, obedient, but when he's 100% obedient, I'm not a math guy, I 100%. When he's 100% obedient, then God is faithful, and God is always faithful. Always. But are we willing to be obedient? Because 95% obedience is not enough. 100%. 100%. So the second example. We find this example in the New Testament. And we'll be brief with this. Look, look with me at John chapter 5. I love to compare these two guys. you got Naaman in the Old Testament. And you got this guy in the New Testament. He's a paralyzed man. John chapter 5, Jesus um, is walking along. He comes to this pool that's close to the temple. It's called the Pool of Bethsaida. And it was a place where supposedly, if you went down and dipped yourself in the water, you could be healed, you could be cured. So, so all these people would wait and they would say when the water was stirred, you know, in other words, like if the wind blew just right, then the first one in the water, he was, you know, he was, he was healed of whatever his problem was. So this lame guy's laying there on the side of the pool and you know, the water gets stirred. He's been laying there for years and years and years, but because he's lame, he's never first one in the water. There are always other people who are first. So we read this story in, um, and Jesus comes up to the guy and he's looking at him. People everywhere need to be healed. I don't know why Jesus picked this guy out, but he did. Everybody's got problems all around this pool. Jesus goes to this one guy and he says, hey, do you want to be well?" would you think? Well, that's a dumb question. I mean, really, Jesus? I've been laying here for years waiting to get in this water. I mean, do I want to get well? Now, I, Jesus never asked dumb questions. Because the reality is, I'm not so sure this guy wanted to get well. See, sometimes we say we want to change, but we really don't want to change. I mean, we put on a show and we tell people, oh, yeah, I want to, change. I want to drop that habit. We don't want to change that. And, and I think this guy was like that. So he said, do you want to get well? So the sick man answered him. Verse 7, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going another, uh, going, another steps down before me. That's not what Jesus asked him. Jesus said, do you want to get well? And this guy's offering an excuse about why he can't get well. Do you see that? you have excuses too you have excuses why you can't give things up why you can't change why you can't be new you've got excuses just like this guy does and my guess is the excuses is somebody else's fault if this person would just get their act together then i could change and do what god wants me to do have you met my wife have you met my husband do you know what my kids are like well my boss he makes it hard you know if i had more money if my circumstance was different We all have excuses for why we can't be obedient and do what God's calling us to do. So here this guy is, he's given an excuse. Well, you know, if somebody, I just can't, then it's not my fault. It's not my fault. And at once, and Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. Get up, take your bed and walk. Pretty simple directions. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now here's the problem. Jesus Jesus healed this guy on the Sabbath, and so it's raising some controversy. So is this guy healed? Yes. Is he changed? Watch with me. Verse 9. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take your bed. Don't you love religious people? But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me. In other words, it's not my fault. I know I'm carrying my mat on the Sabbath, but it's not my fault. That man who healed me, he told me to do it. He told me to do it. He said, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. So there was a crowd in place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. Oh, man, Jesus makes a set. He comes back to this guy. I mean, I... He, Jesus is not happy with him, but he's also not afraid to face the Pharisees. So Jesus comes back to him and says, See, you are well. Sin no more. In other words, you're, you're physically healed, but you still got a problem. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now listen, after Jesus said that to him, listen to what this guy did. Then he went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, was he going away to tell the Jews that as a way of glorifying Jesus? Uh-uh. This guy had not changed one bit. He could walk, but he wasn't changed. You know, you can meet Jesus, you can have an experience with Jesus, you can benefit from Jesus, and still never be changed by Jesus. And that that should be something that we all pray about. Because it's not enough to meet him. It's not enough to have an experience with him. It's not enough to even have been changed by him in some way. You have got to have such, a, such an encounter with Jesus that you become transformed. Some of us have had that. We've been touched, we know who he is. We can cite the verses, the chapters, we know what he's capable of doing, we can tell the stories, but we leave our encounter with him and return to being the same person that we were before. We're unchanged. Just like this guy at the pool of Bethesda, Look at these two stories with me for just a minute. Naaman from the Old Testament and this lame guy from the New And when I say lame, I, I don't mean that he can't walk. I mean, he's a lame guy. See, Jesus didn't, he, he, he made him walk, but he didn't, the lameness was still there. Na, Naaman was a pagan. He didn't even claim to know who God was or follow God. The lame man was a Jew by birth. He knew who God was. He should have known better. Naaman resisted the ritual. He said, I'm not, I'm not going down and getting in that water. That doesn't make any sense to me. How is that going to change anything? I don't see how that's going to make it any better. He resisted the ritual. The lame man was entirely dependent on the ritual. What did he say? If I could just get in the water, then I'll be better. You see that? How that works? I mean, like I, one guy's like, I'm not doing that. I'm not getting in the water. And yet by getting in the water, he got better. The other guy said, if I could only get in the water, I'll get better. Jesus healed him without him even getting in the water. It's not about the ritual. It's about a changed heart. It's about an experience with Jesus Christ. Both had miraculous, miraculous encounters with God, but only Naaman was truly changed and transformed. Both experienced a physical healing. Only Naaman experienced a spiritual transformation. Naaman was different after this. Naaman went back to Aram and became a God worshiper. He was changed, and it wasn't just because the leprosy was gone. See, you're being transformed. Everybody in here is being changed. See, it's not an issue of whether or not you're going to be transformed or you're going to be changed, but how and under what influence. And and unless you are willing to take a hard look at yourself, unless you're willing to measure your spiritual growth, your spiritual progress, based on tangible criteria, you will continue to measure yourself by what you think of other people. You'll continue to say, well, I'm better than her. At least I'm not doing that. You'll measure yourself and you'll think it's okay. Yeah, I know I've got leprosy. I know. I know. But, but at least, at least I still have my hand. And you think, and God's saying, no, I want to change you. I want to heal you of that. I want to make you different. Or you'll measure yourself by other people. Or you'll measure yourself by what you think other people think of you. And that may be even more dangerous. Because then we put on the show, don't we? And then my only job of being transformed is just convincing you that I'm Transformed. And as long as you see me as being transformed, then that must be okay. There's got to be something more than that. And so here's my challenge for you. And 90% of you will not do that, do this this week. 90% of you won't. I'm just, I just know, I know that. I don't measure success by how many of you do this. But for those of you who do this, it will be a challenge. And here it is. You ready? I want you to ask three people who will tell you the truth. That's, that's key. Do not... We all know people who lie to us. I want you to ask three people who will tell you the truth, the ways they have seen you change since they first met you. You're not asking them, don't, don't load the question, but how have you seen me change for good? Uh-uh. <laughs> how have you seen me change? Ask three people. And if you're married, your spouse is automatically one of the three. And you cannot, hear me, you cannot hold a grudge... Over the answer they give you. Because the people who love you, who truly love you, will tell you the truth. Because love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It may sting and it may burn, but it may need to. You're being changed. What are you being changed into? We're being transformed. And this isn't about perfection. There's no, there's no, I don't have any illusion of the fact that somebody comes to faith in Christ and is baptized and immediately all their problems are gone that that, that's not true that's not happened. it's a process we know that listen to what it says first John chapter 3 verse 2 beloved we are God's children now and what we will be has yet to to appear but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is That we're being transformed into the image of Jesus. Listen to this one. I love this one. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. See, you can move to a new city. You can take a new school. You can start a new job. But you'll still be the same old you. If you want to be changed, that's what Jesus does. He transforms us. Buried with Christ in death and raised to walk in a new light. Somebody pointed out to me recently as we started this watermark series that a watermark can only be seen when it's held up to the light your life and the works you produce will be seen for what they are when they're held up to the light of Jesus Christ. On that day, whenever that day should come, and your life is held up to the light of Christ, I pray that that watermark shows an authentic faith, that it shows a quality of a life that's been transformed, and that it proclaims to everyone who knows you that you belong to Christ. Let's pray, Father. We come to this time, Lord, and we just um, we ask, Father, that you would continue to shape us and transform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that during this difficult, maybe even painful transition. That we would continue to be obedient every step of the way. Lord, to lack nothing in our obedience, knowing that you are faithful. Father, for those who are here who are struggling, struggling with a decision just to follow Christ in obedience, I pray that today they would make that decision. And maybe, maybe like Naaman, they, they, they go into the decision with doubts and arguments. But Father, I pray as they trust that they'll see the evidence of your faithfulness in their life, Father. For those who are here and they're realizing that maybe, very much like the man that's mentioned in the Gospel of John, that laid by the pool of Bethesda, maybe, maybe they've met Jesus, maybe they know who Jesus is, maybe they've even been touched by Jesus, benefited by Jesus. But Lord, if they're honest, they hadn't been changed. Father, I pray that anybody like that would just surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ today. And that they would become like him through their death to the old way of living and a new life that they choose to walk by faith. Father, move in each and every heart that's here today. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.